Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and I have with me today Chuck Gumbert. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you here with us today. Let me give our audience a bit of background on you. Chuck is the turnaround specialist. Uh, He's an entrepreneur, a business mentor, and coach, and he's skilled in assisting business owners and leaders with improving improving, top and bottom line growth. Uh, He also helps them enhance operations, and he has expertise in accelerating business performance, and we're going to get into all of that here in this episode today. Uh, Chuck is the CEO and founder of the Tomcat Group, and they provide CEO mentoring, the Accelerate Business Performance Program, business turnaround services, interim management services, and he does speaking and training engagements as well. Uh, He's also the author of his latest book, uh, which is called Pinnacle Leadership, How to Navigate Change, Move Forward, and Reach Your Peak. I have not had a chance to read it yet, but we are going to chat about it, and Chuck will introduce the concepts of that book today. Uh, Chuck lives in Wichita, Kansas. And again, in today's episode, he's going to share his entrepreneurial journey, how he went from his varied background, working for various corporations at all levels, and he'll share that journey with us today as to how he got to becoming his own boss, and then his tips and advice, tremendous tips and advice for how to accelerate performance in our small businesses. So once again, Chuck Gumpert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. Great to have you. So we were chatting before we started recording that you attended University of Texas at Arlington here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where my wife graduated from. Small world, isn't it? I know. But you grew up, if I got it right, in Michigan. So how did you end up at UTA if you were in Michigan? Well, I was born and raised in Michigan. And then uh, two weeks after I graduated from high school, my father moved the whole family down to Dallas oh. and started, started his own business. And I was employee number one for him down there. So wow. that's how I got to Texas. Got it. It's interesting. Yeah, UTA, I was talking with my wife last night, chatting with her that I was going to have an opportunity to speak with you today. And so she was there in the early 80s. But in 78, Arlington was much different than it is now, my goodness. Um, if you went south on, uh, was it Cooper that runs through UTA, which is the main road, and you pass I-20, back then there was n- just fields and farms, and now that's all housing and developed and retail. It's a whole different place. It sure is. It's amazing how it's grown. So you studied at UTA, uh, let's see, business and engineering, and then with uh, an aeronautical engineering major as well, or no, into your, into your junior year. So tell me about that, what you thought you were going to study, what you thought you were going to do after school, and what you ended up doing. Sure. If we go back to my time up in Michigan, Henry, when I was a young kid, we didn't live too far from the airport. And uh, there was one day there was an air show. And the Air Force was conducting the show. And boy, they were flying very, very low over my house. So at the age of five or six, I just became enamored with high-speed aircraft, fighter aircraft. And I said, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So fast forward to graduating high school. Two weeks later, I started flying lessons. 
And I said, you know, I'm going to continue my quest to be a jet pilot. So I said, hey, it just makes sense. A guy is going to be a fighter pilot or a jet pilot. He probably ought to have an aeronautical engineering degree. So that's how I started. Um, going through college, trying to build time, uh, you know, trying to get on with the airlines or corporate pilot. And about halfway through my junior year, it hit me. You know, I'm not going to have enough time, flight time, to get on with any of these. So we started looking at alternatives. And at the time, this was right after the Vietnam War, the Navy had a program to where if you passed the written exam, you passed the physical, and you passed a panel interview with a group of naval officers, they would pretty much guarantee you flight training. And then the other caveat to that was after you completed flight training, you need to give them four and a half years. So I said, all right, I don't really need an aeronautical engineering degree because all they required was a uh, degree in something. In fact, my roommate aboard his ship was a music major. So I switched uh, gears over from aeronautical engineering into business. And why business? What was the attraction there? I had quite a few of the credits and uh, just wanted to uh, make the transition and get the degree. In fact, it was funny when I left, I met with a counselor on the way out the door and she says, you know, Mr. Gumbert, you did this backwards. <laughs> Most people leave here with a degree or a major in aeronautical engineering or engineering with a minor in business, but you did it the other way around. Right. And, it, and in hindsight, it was probably really, really good for me you know, getting into business after I left the service. Yeah, no doubt. But at that point, your vision was to become an airline pilot still? It sure was. All right, so then you, you went into the service as an officer and then you ended up getting up to the rank of lieutenant, right? Correct. Yeah. And you were, I think, more than four years you served. Is that right? I was in almost seven years. It took two years to go through, go through flight training and then four and a half years after that. And uh, you left still thinking you'd go to the airlines or what, what was happening then around that time that you left the service? I, I had left and I started interviewing with a couple of the airlines and I got called back for second interviews. And I had a revelation one evening. I said, you know, I can fly from point A to point B. I can shoot an approach in some pretty nasty weather. I can land aboard a pitching deck at night in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Am I going to be happy driving a bus? <laughs> and the answer was no. Interesting. And, and I'll never forget the uh, one of the ladies at the airlines I called back to cancel my interview, and she just was flabbergasted. What? What? You're, you're canceling the interview? I said, yes, I'm taking a different direction. And I haven't looked back. What was the direction that you thought you had to go on then that was... The, the new path for you? I, I needed something that was going to give me a little bit more fulfillment, job satisfaction than, uh, you know, driving the magic bus. That's that's quite a revelation, though, at that age, though, Chuck. Although, I mean, you weren't young. You By that age, you were, what, in your early 30s or late 20s? I was 31. 31. So that took a lot of introspection, though, to realize, or maybe it's because you were about that age, to say that whole dream that I had about becoming an airline pilot, I'm going to stop, I'm going to shift in a different direction. Was there something else that happened around that time, or just had you been giving it some thought before you got to that decision? The, the other aspect of it, Henry, was they had just gone to a different pay scale with the airlines, what mm. they called the B scale. Okay. And, and sure, I was going to you know get on with the airlines, but the pay for the first year or so at that time was $18,000 a year. Okay. And then they look, looked at me and they said, you don't need to worry. That'll double in a couple of years. <laughs> well, shoot, I walked into a job in business making more than that right, right out of the service. So it was kind of a, a financial piece, but then also a job satisfaction piece. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so where did you go first in your business career? Tell us about that, if you would. Well, stayed in aviation and ended up with a company that was the largest independent jet overhaul company in the country. It was right there in Dallas. And I came on board with them working in a, a customer service role. Was that Avial? 
it was Avial. It yeah, sure they're, was. They're still here, and they do very well, and they've grown quite a bit uh, with their presence here in the Dallas area. Mm-hmm. So then uh, tell us about how your career progressed, because you, then you came out of the aviation industry at some point, right? Right. I, I stayed in aviation. I made a couple of jumps into uh, a sales and marketing company, or excuse me, a jet engine overhaul facility up in Pennsylvania and went into a sales and marketing role there. Transitioned back to jet engine components uh, for another company in sales. And then the president at the time kind of took a liking to me and he said, you know, we, we need some help on an operations standpoint and you've got the background for it. Would you be interested in making that transition? And I said, sure. So we grew the business dramatically uh, over the next few years. And then I had the opportunity to go down to McAllen, Texas for another jet engine overhaul company that was in the state of transition. They had just acquired a facility down there. They had a little problem with the union marching outside, so I went down there to help uh, put that on track. And we did that, and we turned it around. We grew the business pretty dramatically, and then magically it got sold to GE. Hmm. And uh, at my age, I was a little over 40 at the time, realized that I didn't really fit the GE mold, and left. and went to a company called BF Goodrich, and I ran their instruments and avionics, maintenance repair and overhaul facilities, both in Austin, Texas and Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. But in this opportunity back in McKellen, that's when you start getting this experience and taste for helping turn around businesses that are not doing so well, it sounds like. It sure was. I mean, I got a little bit of a taste of it when I was up uh, r- running the component shop up in Boston. And I said, you know, this is, this is kind of nice. Let's go do another one. What was it about it that appealed to you and still does, Chuck? What, what is it? Is this that challenge that, uh, and it has a finite period of time. What is it that really attracts you to that challenge? The biggest piece of it, Henry, is just that, the challenge. You look at it and you go out and you walk through the shop and you go, boy, this is not running very effectively at all. I think we can fix this. So you break it down into fundamentals and you, you basically start rebuilding it. And while the fundamentals are, are usually the same, every situation is slightly different. The people are different. Uh, the context is different. So that makes it fresh and every time you tackle a new turnaround challenge. Mm-hmm. It sure does. Yeah. Okay. So during all this time, are you thinking at all at some point, I want to do my own thing, start my own business, or is that still not in your mind in this, in this time frame we're talking about here? It was always in the back of my mind. Boy, sure would be nice to go out and do something on my own you know, to where I didn't have to deal with, you know, the board of directors or, you know, worrying about making payroll or cash flow or those type of things. I said, you know, it'd really be nice to go out and do it on my own. But it sure was comfortable working for those companies. I mean, the, the paychecks were good. Bonuses were really nice when they came through. I mean, it was, it was comfortable. And is that what held you back? That's primarily what held me back, correct. Okay. I mean, at the time, I'm, I'm married was was married i'm still married raising a daughter and boy you know to stick your neck out that far and take a uh, a jump like that when you're in your late 40s early 50s you just kind of go whoa that's that's pretty traumatic yeah okay so bring us to the point where you do finally make that move obviously life is at a different point for you i'm suspecting your daughter's grown and gone and so how did you get to that point where you felt like all right it's time to do my own thing well in 2008 i was working another turnaround here in wichita and the bottom fell out of the aviation industry. Mm. And lo and behold, the board of directors was looking around going, you know, we need to make some changes. We have a lot of high paid people here. Mm-hmm. So I got laid off at the age of 55. Wow. Yeah, that's what was I that, said. Was that the first wow. time you had been laid off? It sure was. Had never been fired, never been laid off before. 
no, sir. That's a First shock. Time. Shock. Huh? And, and it was. I mean, it was a bucket of cold water. You know, just, oh, my God, what, what are we going to do? Well, I started to look for a job. And, you know, the, the age of 55, the market was down. Said, oh, you know, this isn't really going well. So I said, all right, I'm going to get on board with technology. So I said, what I'll do is I'll put together a presentation that highlights myself and my capabilities. And I finished that. And I said, you know, this would look good on a website. So I started to put a website together, highlighting all of that. And then the same thing, like back in the, uh, after I finished the service, had a revelation. I said, you know, I've done a lot of turnarounds. I've made a lot of money for a lot of people. And as I looked at that website, I said, this is a business. Hmm. I'm going to go out and do this on my own. I'm going to hang out my own shingle. We're going to call it the Tomcat Group after the F-14 that I flew in the service. And... Honestly, Henry, it was the best decision, best thing that has happened to me in my life. No, I believe it. What, what did your wife think at the time? Go for it. That's great. That's great. All right, so the timing was right. And what I love about this story is there is no right time in our lives to make the move. We get there when we get there and when things align. And, and here you are, having had tremendous success. And you started where most people would say it would be later in life. But there is no such thing as later in life. It's when the timing was right for you. Mm -hmm, exactly. All right, so just introduce what the Tomcat Group is and what you do. We'll come back to it later, but it just so we have a context of what you do with this business now. What I do is I work with business owners, entrepreneurs, to help them improve or accelerate their overall business performance, basically taking it from the level it is today to maybe one or two levels higher than that. All right, and so let's dive into that, accelerating performance. That's the first topic I want to chat about that you specialize in. If you could just introduce that a little bit more, tell us a little bit about it, maybe a couple of examples of how you do that, this whole accelerating performance, and what you mean by that. The, there's two aspects of it, Henry. One is a company is in serious trouble. Uh, inventory sky high, on-time delivery is bad. The good people are leaving the organization. You've got the bank or the investor sniffing around. I mean, it's it's a hardcore turnaround situation. In those type of situations, I'll come in as the interim senior leader, whether that would be the interim president or interim VP director, what, what have you. But I come in extremely hands-on and start to sort out exactly what issues we have. In most cases, the whole organization has defaulted into what I call MTM. Uh, for those of us my age, that does not stand for Mary Tyler Moore. That stands for that stands for making the month. And by that I mean the only thing that matters is we have to have a revenue number of X, whatever that is. And that turns into the default. Well, when you've got an organization that's driven like that, that's only focused on one thing, revenue, everything else goes out the window. Everything else is subservient to that one goal. So as a result, overtime goes up. Shipments get uh, pulled forward that end up uh, being delivered the last few days of the month. Rework goes sky high. A warranty starts to skack up. Frustration with the organization builds. And uh, everybody loses focus of what's really, really important. And that's where I come in. I help put the train on the tracks. So, okay. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. It's, it's like this downward spiral that, that builds that then, then people just can't get out of it without some help. Exactly. And it's what I call, and it's an aviation term called the death spiral. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you're, or the graveyard spiral. You're just going round and round and you're coming down and down. Eventually, you're going to hit bottom. 
And so you've done a lot of these. You've worked with a lot of businesses. And again, keeping in mind that our audience is very small business owners. What are some of the root causes that you've seen? I mean, you've mentioned some of the symptoms, the inventory issues, cash flow issues, focusing then on short-term goals. But, but what have you seen are some of the origins of it that get these businesses in trouble? There's, there's three major pieces of it. And the first one is usually the leadership within the organization. Um, with entrepreneurs, they're very, very intelligent individuals, but they're not, in a lot of cases, what I would call hardcore leaders. They're good folks. I mean, you know, Johnny's a good guy. Mary's a great gal. I mean, they're really, really good people, but they really don't have the, the leadership wherewithal to take the organization to the next level. And part of that is they really haven't established the vision for the entire organization. And that's how we end up with the, the default into the making the month piece is nobody really knows what the vision is. We're just pushing hard to make the month, make the month. And what I do is I work with the leadership or the owner of the business and help them go through the, the leadership challenges that they've got from a coaching perspective, help them design and articulate the vision. And then we take that and break it down into a four to six element strategy. And then we just communicate the Dickens out of that to the rest of the organization. This is who we are. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. And that helps eliminate the chaos and helps put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. Do you find that often, especially with companies that were started by an entrepreneur and then have grown, did they wait often too long to get help, to bring in a mentor, to bring in a coach? Does that happen a lot in your observation? It happens, but it's only about 50% of the time. Okay. The, the other 50% is, in effect, I've got a, uh, a client that I'm working with now. He's owned the business for 15 years. He was doing $3.5 million in revenue when he bought it. It's still doing $3.5 million in revenue when I came in. And he said, you know, I know I can make this better. I just don't know how to get it to the next level. So, so I come in and work with him. And through, uh, through coaching initiatives, we've taken his business from that level to $5 million. And uh, the guy is going to do very, very well on the bottom line this year. Yeah. So it's, it, it's typically the case we're missing those skills to take it to the next level, like you said, those leadership skills. So to that end, what do you advise to someone who is getting started in their business so that they can avoid that, that roadblock that's coming? What, what do they need to have in place or what do they need to plan for to hopefully avoid that? The, the biggest piece of it, Henry, is to define what the overall company vision is. You know, who, who, does it, who does it want to be when it grows up? What do you want it to be when it grows up? And really get that fully defined so you can actually, so you can hardcore communicate it to your organization. And then with that, develop the strategy or the four or five items that you're going to go attack to, to fulfill that vision. And then overly communicate it over and over and over. And I'm not just talking about hanging a poster up on the wall. I'm talking about discussing it in uh, staff meetings or operating review meetings, scheduling meetings during the day. I mean, folks, this, this fits in with the strategy. This is exactly what we talk about with the strategy. That's, that, that's one of the key fundamentals that are missing. Mm -hmm. What I find, though, is that what's very easy to do in the heat of the action and the turmoil of running a business is you, and it's got to be at, it has to start at the top, that we kind of throw that out and go into reactive mode, firefighting mode, and we forget that. Is that have you found that to be the case as well with business owners you've worked with? Oh, it sure, sure is. I mean, the, the business owners and the entrepreneurs, like I said, they're very, very intelligent people. I mean, one of the clients that I'm working with, 
he was actually spending a portion of his day out chasing parts on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you, you've got people for that. Yeah, but I'm really good at finding them. I, I know where those things are. Yeah. And I looked at him right in the eye and I said, you know, you've got a choice. You can run the business or you can chase parts. Pick one. Yeah. Well, I want to run the business. I said, okay, we've got to get you out of that mode. Right, right. Okay, you also talk a lot about, and we've mentioned it here, this building of high-performing teams. What can you share along those lines, tips, a couple tips or advice to building high-performing teams? The, the first three elements that I talked about, Henry, were the uh, foundational elements of my success model, leadership, vision, and strategy. The next pieces of it fit into exactly what you're asking, the alignment of the actions and then accountability. If you break that strategy down into additional elements or tactical plans, and everybody has a name, or everybody has one assigned to them with a name and a due date, then it's real easy to hold people accountable. Hey, Henry, you said that you were going to have that report done on September 15th. Is it done? Yes or no? Now, sure, there's going to be issues and things are going to slip, but people need to be held accountable. Once they understand what the plan is and what their uh, contribution is to that plan and what they've signed up for for that plan, then in in my mind, it's perfectly okay to hold them accountable. Hmm. Yeah, I I love that concept. In fact, I had made a note of it because I was watching one of your videos on your website. So let's just fast forward then to talking about your book because this is where you talk a lot about this obviously and in there you have that pyramid diagram and at the very top before success is accountability right it sure is and it's such a big issue it's one of the things that i find in working with small clients with small business clients when i'm working with them mentoring them or coaching them is there's all this talk there's plan there's strategies but nobody gets held accountable why is that so hard you think for a lot of people The biggest piece of it that I've seen, Henry, is until you have the vision defined and the strategy, and we have signed up for the actions and everybody understands not just the actions, but where we're going, it's almost impossible to hold anybody accountable, you know, because, well, you said this yesterday, well, you said that the other day, well, I didn't know you wanted that report on the 15th, you know, it's, it's not clear. But if we really define what it is we're going to go do, it's much easier to hold people accountable. Yeah, I think I think they all. To your point, there's mixed messages, right? So I've I've seen situations where, and often it's about, well, let's let's step back to how they're being incented, because mm-hmm. that, and what are you looking for? So you might have given them this report that they have to fill out, let's say, every month, but very quickly, teams and employees figure out what you are really looking at, and since you haven't asked for that report in two months, guess what? That's no longer going to become a priority. But when someone doesn't follow through, and, and there has to be a method. So you, like you said, you're going to have this task done by this date. We agree that that's a date you can accomplish it by. Yes, yes, that's good. And then it doesn't happen. There has to be some consequence. And I think that's where people fall down as well, right? So two parts there. It's that clear definition, uh, that follow through, and then actually there being some consequence to me not delivering, to me not being accountable, right? Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I see people struggle with is, okay, well, what do I do? Because I can't fire that person. Well, then you've got a bigger problem. But I often find that people are challenged with, well, how do I administer consequences here? So give me some examples of what you see works in a business environment for someone to kind of change the culture of that lack of accountability. What do you typically do, especially in those immediate, in that immediate time frame when you're coming into an organization? First thing I do is I set the expectations. 
and I'm consistent with those expectations. If something is due on a particular date, I, w I will follow it up on, on that date. And if it's not done, we will have a conversation just like you and I are having here. Henry, you know, we really needed that. You, you had committed to it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that it didn't happen. Is there something that got on the way? Is there something that we need to talk about? That's the first conversation. If it happens again, it's usually a, uh, in their office on, again, expressing disappointment as to why it didn't happen and help them get it on track. And the third time, it's, it's time to really talk about, you know, what are we doing? Why aren't we doing it? What, what's the bigger issue? And it may come down to they are in over their heads. They've got too many things going on. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't know what they're doing. They aren't on board with what you want to do. And, and that's where you need to start sorting out the who, what, where's, and why's and start to put together that contingency plan to uh, get that back on track. Yeah. And that person might need more coaching. They might need more training. They may not be a fit culturally. So I, I love that approach. And I've found that even once you start instituting an environment where people know that you're going to ask about that again. So you said you have it by this date. Why is it not due? People start getting it. Oh, this is a culture where we are held accountable and most people fall in line has been my experience. I, I, I agree. All right. So in the book, and we've touched on it in pieces, obviously accountability piece is part of it, but there's, you present this success model. Would you please introduce that and give us some of the highlights of what that is, the success model you put forward in the book? Sure. We've, we've gone through quite a bit of it, but usually when I walk into a, a situation, you've got the, the owners banging on results, results, results. And, uh, you know, everybody's frustrated, like I said, and is driving all the wrong behaviors. So what I do is I break it down and we start to establish some real leadership in the organization. And I'm not just talking about the president or the CEO or the owner. I'm talking about the, the leadership team. Starts with the staff and then goes down to the managers, right down to the supervisors. And then we start, I work with the team to develop that vision and the strategy and then fine tune it with them from the actions and the alignment standpoint and then start building the accountability program. I mean, one of the things I found very useful for accountability is a rolling action item list to where you actually have the issue, you have the action, who owns that action, and at what point it's going to be uh, uh, cleared up. And it's, a lot of those cases, there's some detailed actions that uh, go along with that. And then there's the incentive piece that goes with it. Sure, everybody gets paid, uh, but there's some incentives uh, along the way. You know, some of the cases I've seen, salespeople are incentivized one way, basically on the revenue that they bring in the door. Operations is graded on how much goes out the door. Well, what I try to do is to align those. Everybody is responsible for bringing work in the shop. Everybody is responsible for making sure we make a profit on that when it goes out the door. So I try to get the alignment across the, the incentive packages as well. And it's only then that you can actually focus on the results and the success piece or the top of the pyramid. Yeah, lots of good stuff in this book. I have not had a chance to read it in its entirety yet. It's available on your website and on Amazon. Is that right? That's correct. Excellent. All right, I, situational awareness is something obviously that caught my attention, so I want to get your definition and interpretation of that. I didn't mention at the outset, but I got actually got my pilot, student pilot's license before I got my driver's license. I also thought I wanted to be an airline pilot, but never ended up going down that path. My partner, business partner, David Begin, who's a co-host of this show as well, he has his pilot's license. And so this term situational awareness we have brought into our work environments. But define what it is 
in the military setting and then how it applies to business? In flying high-performance aircraft, situation awareness was key. You needed to know what was going on, not just on the in the cockpit, what was taking place on the radios, uh, what your environment was, were there any other airplanes in the area, um, you know, somebody's making a radio call, you know, that might be three, four, five, ten miles away from you. You're, you're basically trying to paint that picture of what is what it is that's going in around you and keeping track of it, rather important. And I found it's the same thing that's true in business. Uh, we've talked a lot about making the month. The only thing that matters is the revenue number, the revenue number, the revenue number. Well, there's a lot more to it than that because we need to be looking at what is supporting and behind that revenue number. You know, do we have the right number of people? Do we have the right parts? Is the engineering com uh, com completed? Are we testing it properly? Um, are the sales guys selling things inside of lead time instead of within our standard lead times? What's really driving all of that? And that's where I come in with the, uh, what I call the balanced scorecard, to where we're not only looking at the revenue number, but we're looking at a whole bunch of drivers and uh, uh, metrics behind that revenue number as far as what's contributing to it. And that helps those people kind of pull up a little bit and look a little broader and farther down as opposed to hyper-focused on a particular task or item or objective. Mm -hmm. We use it uh, in our restaurant to for our managers. We've used this term to kind of help them understand that depending on the situation, if we've got a bunch of people in line or the dining room is full or you're short-staffed, that situation then dictates perhaps different actions that you need to take. In other words, you can't just go by the rule book, oh, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to be cleaning the machine right now. No, the situation dictates an adjustment to what you're doing. And that's how we've applied it in our business. That, that, that makes perfect sense. In, in fact, what I do with it, Henry, is when I go into an operating review with a company, I don't start with revenue or EBITDA. I start with on-time delivery. Hey guys, we're only at, pick a number, 88% on time delivery. Why? And then we start to get into some of the other metrics. Well, we don't get the parts in on time, or when the parts come in, they're not right. Or, you know, Mary used to handle that, Mary's not here anymore. I mean, we just, we start to get into what are the drivers behind not making that on time delivery. All right, we've touched on a lot of the things that you offer, and you gave us a brief introduction, obviously, at the beginning, but what have we not touched on as far as the Tomcat Group? How do you engage with clients and just summarize the services that you offer, if you would? Sure. The big big one that we do is interim management. Like I said, we'll go out and basically run a company for a period of time. That might be for three months. It might be a year, uh, depending on what the situation is. The other element, and there's uh, several different levels there, um, we can come in and spend a hardcore week with you and your leadership team, really get into what the issues are, and then from there develop a coaching, a weekly coaching and mentoring uh, program or accountability program. Uh, another one is just a little bit smaller than that. We'll only come in for a couple of days. That's for some of the smaller companies to really get an understanding of what's going on. And there might be a bi-weekly follow-up to go along with that. Then the other aspect is uh, come in and uh, do some speaking engagements. Um, come in and talk about the what I learned as a fighter pilot and how that translates into business seems to be a rather popular one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine so. Excellent. So as we start to wrap it up here, I, I always want to find out what people think have been keys to their business and life success. Um, 
I've gathered already from you that you've always had a plan, it seems like. You've always been the type of person that has a plan and a vision. Is that fair? That, that is totally correct. Where did, where did that, was that just always your character, your personality, even when you were young, even before college? I, I tell people that I've always had an innate ability to look at something and go, okay, this is how we're going to go do it. I don't know if it was my engineering background, if it was the way I was raised, I'm, or the time I spent flying, but everything I've done, I've got a, a plan back behind it. I am not a, a free-floating type guy. Mm-hmm. Drives my wife nuts. <laughs> and as it relates to business, because you get conflicting advice and, and people have different opinions. Some people say you must plan, others just say, you know, just iterate. But certainly when you come in and help somebody fix a business that's on that downward spiral, you have to have a plan, but it has to execute pretty quickly, right? So just tell me about how you reconcile those two challenges. The biggest piece is to come in and within a very short period of time, figure up exactly what the major drivers are and stop the chaos. And what I try to do in a manufacturing environment is I get everybody focused, not on making the month, but focused on the schedule, the schedule, the schedule. Because there's three things that I focus on. One is what the uh, what the on-time delivery is. Another aspect is how much did it cost to get that out the door. And the other piece of it is how, what do we have in inventory? Those are the three big focuses that, that I put on. And I try to get the whole organization focused on those three. And lo and behold, once we start focusing on those three, the three major elements of what's really important, the chaos starts to go away. Mm. And then you can start to work on some of the other, what I'll call softer issues. Uh, I, one of the videos I watched on your website, you also talk about your drive and, co- and commitment. You've always had a drive and commitment to succeed. And that's, I have to think, one of, been, one of your keys to success, right? It, it is. And I'll, I'll tell you where that came from. When I was young, I had polio back in the 50s. And uh, when I left the hospital, they told my parents, the best you could expect is uh, crutches or maybe braces, but most probably a wheelchair. Wow. Well, shoot, at the age of two years old, I mean, I didn't know what the prognosis was. I mean, nobody told me. Mm-hmm. And my dad would tell stories about a ball would roll across the living room floor, and I would get up to get it. My brother would, younger brother would get up and knock me down. And dad said, the look of determination on your face as you got up and struggled to get up to go get that ball and then picked it up and took it away from me, brother, was where I got my, my drive and commitment from. Yeah, yeah, and that's driven you throughout your entire life, obviously. Sure has. Anything else that stands out do you think has been a key to your business success? The biggest piece of it is having the ability, the gumption, the audacity, as George Patton would say, to go for it, break it down, plan it out. Let's go fix this. Make the commitment, make the initi- take the initiative, stay the course, and go fix it. That's great. Well said. All right, we'll start to wrap it up. Uh, besides your book, which, again, is called Pinnacle Leadership, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes page at The How of Business, is there another book or books that you've read that you would recommend to our audience? I would highly recommend a book written by Jim Rohn, great motivational speaker, called Leading an Inspired Life. I read it for the first time about seven or eight years ago, and Henry, when I finished it, God, I'm going to get emotional here. It was almost like I had a tear in my eye. I mean, it, it hit me, and it hit me hard. And I said, by golly, I wish somebody would have given me that book when I was in my late 20s because my life would have been different. Why did it resonate so so deeply with you? When, when I was growing up, coming through the ranks, the big focus was if you focus on your job 
and you really do well at your job and you pay attention at your job, you're going to be taken care of. Well, what the book talks about is you need to be working harder on your life than you do on your job or harder on yourself than you do on your job. And I, and I wish somebody would have sat me down years ago and said, you know, Chuck, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you got to be spending more time focusing on the family and on, on yourself and bettering yourself versus, you know, focusing on the job. And it sounds like you read it around the time that you got laid off. It was shortly thereafter. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Great recommendation. I have not read that. I'll have a link to that book as well on the show notes page, and our listeners can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. Final two questions then, Chuck, for you. Last parting piece of advice to our audience, again, mostly small business owners or people like you were who are in the corporate world hoping to make a transition into becoming their own boss. The best advice that I could give, and we've talked about it earlier, is put together that plan and then stick with the plan. Never give up. Never give up. The goal never changes. How we get to that goal changes, but the goal itself never changes. Stay the course. Fantastic advice. And where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and the Tomcat Group? They can check out my website at www.chuckgumbert.com. Fantastic. Chuck, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for being with us today and for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Uh, It's been fun, Henry. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. We look forward to having you in the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.